Have you had those moments when um, you're thinking of a place where you're hoping to go, a place like Maine, you know, or maybe a family um, gathering or some trip that you've been planning to take, or you're, you're thinking of that place and it, and it seems as if you were already there. You're not, but you, you feel as if you're like already there. And you're longing for that place. You're just waiting for that place. Well, as we look at Luke chapter 13, where we'll be this morning, we look at a passage that is in what is called the travel narrative of Jesus. And it's there that it seems that that's what's happening with Jesus, that like he's so longing for some place that he's already there. He is on his way to Jerusalem. And for 10 chapters in the Gospel of Luke, 10, 11 chapters from Luke 9 to 19, Luke reminds us of one thing over and over and over. He says to us through Jesus, the narrative of Jesus' life, Jerusalem is the goal. He says it over and over. In fact, he has already told us this previously In the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 9, verse 51, you probably remember these words. As the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He resolutely set out for Jerusalem. But now, as we get to chapter 13, Jesus is even more determined. And and he's described in verse 22 as passing through villages, teaching and preaching, And it says this, Jesus went through the towns and the villages, teaching as he went, always pressing on towards Jerusalem. Always pressing on toward Jerusalem. So when we hear that, it doesn't seem that the cross is a future possibility for Jesus, but a present tense encounter. As we journey with Jesus, he is always and already at the cross, it seems. So we're going to look at what we'll just say is our next step of sharing in this journey with him, collecting ourselves at the cross as we go to the cross. And we encounter a very strange passage of Scripture and a strange interaction that Jesus has. Sometimes the gospel is nothing but comfort to us. And in fact, the gospel as a whole is comfort. But the gospel also sometimes, by word and by example, lays on us demands. And in one of the most demanding passages in the gospel of Luke, We join Jesus in the journey. This is the word of the Lord. At that time, as Jesus is progressing and on his way, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus replied, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. 
Now let's just pause for a moment. We're going to get to the rest of that passage, but let's just pause for a moment and ask the question, what's the motivation of these religious leaders? What is the motivation of the Pharisees? Some suggest that they had ulterior motives because until now, they have really have not had any concern for the welfare of Jesus. Right? For the most part, they really haven't cared. Maybe they're in league with Herod because they know if Jesus comes into Jerusalem, it's going to create a political hot mess. So maybe they're in some kind of league with Herod so to try to dissuade Jesus from coming into Jerusalem. Or maybe they were some of the sympathetic Pharisees, because we know there were those, who later came to faith, as we see in the book of Acts. As you read forward, Luke recorded the gospel of Jesus. Luke also recorded the Acts of the Apostles, what we call the book of Acts. And we see in the book of Acts that there are Pharisees that came to faith. Maybe these were some of those those sympathetic Pharisees. But it really doesn't matter because it all points to one dangerous reality that Jesus is getting ready to face, and it is this. No prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Those are the words Jesus used. You see, he was alluding to this unholy history of this holy city. Prophets bring the message of the kingdom of God. Prophets bringing that message of the kingdom of God face the wrath of the kingdom of men. Now why is that? Because the kingdom of God always threatens power. The power of the kingdom of men. The kingdom of God always threatens the need for control. The kingdom of God always threatens the self-serving focus of the kingdoms of men, whether in the halls of government like Herod or Congress or the White House or the State House or in the hearts of men like the Pharisees or me or you. Jesus wants to turn the world right side up up by turning the rule of men upside down. Let me say that again. Jesus wants to turn the world right side up by turning the rule of men upside down. But as we see, Jesus has a warning given to him from these Pharisees. He receives the equivalent of a State Department travel warning. He really does. Look at this graph, and you'll see this is, these are the actual travel warnings from the State Department. There's, first of all, exercise normal precautions. You know, think about you know, where you're going and that kind of thing. Secondly, um, exercise increased caution. You better be a little more aware of where you are and what you're doing. Been to some of those kind of places. Been to some of the places where you come to the third one. Reconsider travel. Maybe you should really think about whether you're going to book that ticket. And then the last one, do not travel. Do not travel. You see, what the Pharisees give to Jesus is a full red-level warning. Stay away from Jerusalem. Do not travel. Bad things happen to people who do God's bidding in that place. But... Verse 33, no matter what, in any case, 
I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day. Jesus says, he gets the warning. He, he, knows, what's, well, he knows what the history of Jerusalem is about. And he says, I must press on. He must press on doing what? Well, verse 32 gives us a glimpse. He says, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. And we see this amazing picture of the determined love of Jesus. Last week we looked at Jesus in the wilderness, but he comes out of the wilderness after facing down the devil, and where does he go? Jesus goes to worship. He goes to church, so to speak. He goes to the temple. And as he goes there, he declares his mission, quoting Isaiah 61. You remember these words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And guess what? Not even... A fox, like evil Herod, was going to stop him. Nothing was standing in the way of Jesus. Even a red-level travel warning. But I wonder, how many times do we put up travel warnings to Jesus? How many times do we Say to Jesus, no, Jesus, I, I, don't want you, I don't want you coming this way. No, Jesus, you don't, you don't want to come in. I don't want you to have that much rule in my life. I don't want you to have that much influence in my life. Or, or maybe we say, no, Jesus, those people are never going to change. No, Jesus. Or, or maybe it's, no, Jesus, they are not our kind of people. And so, no. We put up walls and we even fight his work in our lives. And sadly, sometimes in the lives of others. We are too busy living in the kingdom of men when Jesus wants to bring the kingdom of God to rule our lives and he offers that to us, but we offer not welcome, but resistance. So part of Lent, as we walk through Lent, is confession. And part of confession is confessing our resistance to God. Our resisting God to do deep work in our life. Maybe holding on to other things that are much more important to us, we think. Or our, our confessing to God our realization of the powerlessness we have over others. Or maybe repenting of hearts that exclude people because they are not our kind of people. But again, even as we wrestle with that, verse 33, in any case, Jesus says, I press on today and tomorrow and the next day. Jesus Christ is determined. 
He was not giving up on the mission of God, which was focused on Jerusalem. And guess what? He is not giving up on you, and he's not giving up on me, and he's not giving up on our world. And we need to know that. Jesus is so determined to fulfill the call to the cross. He's so determined to deal the death blow to what sin has done to mankind. And that is exactly the disposition of Jesus Christ today toward you and me. He's determined. Jesus is not going to give up on us and the world. Now, how do I know that? How can I state that as a fact to you? That Jesus is not going to give up. There's one verse in the entire Bible that teaches me that. And it is these words from 1 Corinthians 13. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. And Scripture tells us in 1 John that God is love. So do you think that we could replace that word love with the name Jesus? I think so. Jesus never gives up. Jesus never loses faith. Jesus is always hopeful, and Jesus endures through every circumstance. Love does not give up. God is not going to give up. But, love desires the highest and best good. And when that is not the case, when the highest and best good is not happening in the case of people or the world around us, then what overflows is lament. Not from a position of judging others, but rather from a position of love's sorrow is lament. So there's the determined love of God. But what about when God's love cries? And what does God's love cry over today? I think we really don't know people. We really don't get to know people when times are great. When we're all on a high and everything's wonderful. But I think it's in the times of sorrow and loss and grief that we really get to know people if we journey with them. And I think that's true in the heart of Jesus. In words that drip with the sorrow of his heart, we see the heart of God. Back to chapter 13, verse 31. Jesus, after getting this warning, says this. He laments this. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's a contrast here, there's a comparison here of what, it, what, the, what the heart of one in the kingdom of man looks like against the heart of the kingdom of God. Because Herod, if you remember, was the fox. But here's Jesus, the hen, like a mother hen, 
brokenhearted, wanting, determined to protect the people. Jesus exposes the heart of God. And in the process, he points to another day. The last thing he says is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the next time you're going to see me. He's pointing to the day he entered the city, what we call Palm Sunday. And on that day, we also see God's heart. In Luke 19, we read these words. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. So can we just sit this morning a little bit with the broken heart of Jesus? Can we do that? Do you know why Jesus is so determined to get to Jerusalem? Why the cross is so vividly in focus? Why he presses and presses and presses and presses? And he lets nothing get in the way. Why the cross seems to be this present tense encounter when you read the Gospels and you just see Jesus, it's as if he's already there. Because you know what? Jesus hates what sin, he hates what sin has done to God's prized creation, mankind. <laughs> and I'm fully aware that you know, sin is like the S word, it's like a dirty word in our world. And I'm fully aware that in churches we want to be careful that we don't talk about that too much. this capacity for us to transgress against the will of God and seek of our own will. But that's what's wrecked our world. That's why we sing songs like Jesus paid it all. That's why we embrace the cross. That's why we walk through Lent. Because it's our choices that we've made, and both individually and collectively, that wreck our world, that wreck our lives, that wreck our relationships. And so we need to sit with the heart of God. Bob Pierce said this, you, you know these words, they're famous words, let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. Let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. And nothing breaks the heart of God more than what sin has inflicted on his creation. And in this Lenten season, this challenges me to embrace lament. And so here's a question, two questions. The first one, will I lament for the world that is broken? Will I? Don't answer that quickly. I have not answered it quickly this week. It took me a long time to get to that question in preparing this sermon. So now's not the time to go, well, of course I will. Yep. No, just 
Think about it for a moment. The evil and the sin of the world gets to God's heart. That's what we're seeing. So Jesus weeps as worldly powers disregard the king of the universe and the flourishing salvation he has for us. We see his heart is crushed. So I say things like this. You say them, I say them, we say them. I say, I want to be like Jesus. But does my heart grieve the sinfulness and the brokenness and the evil of the world as Jesus' heart does? I want to be like Jesus. I do. But do I want to be like him at this point? We treat certain things as news bites or issues to comment on with a Facebook post. Maybe a quick news feed, news bite, or something that comes across television, or maybe this is something worth debating on Facebook. Things like this. Poverty crises, income disparity, opioid crisis, human trafficking, abortion, sexual immorality, incivility, racial inequity, violent crime, political gridlock, highest incarceration rates, Muslim refugees murdered, the Me Too movement, sexual harassment. We view them as issues or news bites, and you know what? Within two days, within 48 hours, they're in the news feed and they're gone. And we forget about them, except for the fact that the carnage left behind all of that goes on. They're not just issues, and they're not just news bites. This all points to a world where God's will is left undone, where his intended good is broken, and sin does this. And there's so much more we can add to it. But that is what was hurled at Jesus on the cross. And, and I, I and we, but I, 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 I have to do this. You have to do this. And yes, we collectively, but personally, I need to grieve this. If anything, Lent should lead me to embrace what James Howell says when he says, we want to know and to feel the sorrows God feels. Even as we labor for good in the world, we should pause to grieve. But we should be laboring for good in the world. That's part of our lamenting. Our grieving should lead us to do something, so will I serve the broken and sit in the ashes with them? Because we need to sit in solidarity with the weeping Jesus by ministering to the doubting and the broken and the lonely and the depressed and the refugee and the addicted and the rejected and the grieving. Isn't that what happens like when we had grief share? That's not pretty. What, isn't that what happens in our current divorce care groups? Isn't that what happens when we, when we welcome the broken among us? Isn't that what happens when we realize that the church doesn't exist for you and for you and for you and for me, but for the world? And that we're sent to it? 
to be the representatives of this good news that tells us that he raises this life up from the dead. Right? Because the world that we walk in has been marred by sin. So we need to, we need to lament with Jesus. So will I lament the broken world? But it's so very easy for me to point at someone else or something else in the world, especially something that's so um, beyond me, like something happening out there in the world. But will I lament also my own sin? At the start of Lent every year, doesn't matter what year, there are certain texts of Scripture that are read every Ash Wednesday. No matter what, no exception. One of those is Psalm 51. And these are the words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. This is David's lament for his participation in exercising his kingly power, abusing his kingly power over a defenseless woman and committing adultery against her. This is a raw lament over sin. Our choices that put God's will second in our lives, choices that cause us and others to not realize our identity as made in the image of God. So the question I ask is, Jeff, are you lamenting your own sin? Dan Moon um, offered a stunning prayer this past week in our devotional. It went like this. Gracious God, give us pause of the coldness that develops within us when we think you are incapable of responding to human evil with judgment. Save us from ourselves. Amen. I think one of the things he's saying is that you and I have such an amazing capacity, amazing capacity, to try to figure out how to explain away God's judgment. To hide the darkness that's within us. You see, it's not so much that God hates sin that drives him to the cross. Yes, as I said, he does. But it's really that God loves us so much that he grieves over the loss of the intended flourishing he has for us, for the world. He, he weeps over our desire to do life without him. He grieves over a world that's violent, a world that's incivil, a world that's self-absorbed, a world that's broken and lost. And the truth is, if it wasn't for the gospel, the true gospel, I told you earlier that the gospel is both comfort and demand, and there's some demand on us today. 
But the truth is, this would be very despairing. This would be hopeless. Except for one verse. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day. Nothing will stand in the way of King Jesus facing down your sin and mine and the world's and defeating it, crushing it at the cross. That's why we hang them in our sanctuaries. That's why we hang them around our necks. That's why we hold them in our hands all through length and in our pockets to remind us we are people of the cross because Jesus Christ at the cross crushed sin. And we're reminded that he doesn't give up on us but rather gives of himself to us, even still. Jesus did press on to the cross, and there at the cross, Jesus Christ made the way for the redemption of sin. So we want you to carry this cross all through Lent. We want you to bring it to church with you. We want you to hold it in your hand, rub it, hold it, feel its contour. It's smooth, it's beautiful, not like the cross of Christ that was rough and painful and ugly. But we want it to remind us all through Lent of the determined love of God. And as we look at the world and as we hear of a mass shooting and as we hear of some politicians acting like children and as we hear of loved ones who've walked away from God or want nothing to do with God, we need to take hold of these little wooden crosses and remind ourselves that God is not giving up. It cost him too much. So as our worship team comes today as we sing Chris Tomlin's song, Love ran red. I love that line. I want to invite you to think about the heart of God for you and for me and the world around us. Let us pray for God's heart for the world. Can I invite you today to come with mourning? I know. Sunday morning church, we're going there to get inspired and walk out and go, whew, that was a great service right? But can you, can you mourn today? Can you grieve? Can we together grieve the job sin has done on our families? On our community? On people we love and our systems, our business and governments, how the world has been marred, this good world that God desires for us. Can we grieve that? 
And can we come in confession over our sin? Over the places where maybe there's resistance, where you put up resistance to God, where I put up resistance to God? Can I come in confession? Can I come, can we come corporately in confession for the sins of a world that seeks to go without God? But, 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 let us not despair. Because the determination of this Christ, I hope I never get over this. I hope every time I think of this the rest of my life, moves me to the core of my being because he was so determined that nothing would stand in his way at the cross. He was so determined that nothing would stand in his way to get hold of me and you and us. And because of his determination, because love ran red, the king can conquer our hearts when we let him. Let's stand together and let's sing. So if you haven't picked up your cross yet, our ushers have plenty. I want to invite you to take it with you. But as you leave here today, as we leave here today, let us not leave unchanged. Let us have the courage to let the Spirit of God change us. Let us leave lamenting the brokenness of sin in the world and in our own lives, but the good news of the gospel of Jesus is he has not given up. He, he has provided for us a way out from under the weight of sin. Let us place our faith in him. Let us walk in faith in him. Let us confess to him. And the scripture says that we confess our sins. He is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is our Christ. To God be praised. May you go in the determined love of God this day. Amen. Greet one another in Jesus' name. You're dismissed.